Welcome to Textile Update, the podcast where we can share our passion for textiles, fibers, and yarns. This is Gwendolyn Hustvedt. This is the third and final episode where I focus on non-yarn fabrication. I left off our last discussion of non-yarn fabrics by talking about synthetic suede. And I did that partly because it would provide a nice echo. At the end of this episode, I'll be talking about real suede, suede made from animal sources. But before we get there, I want to talk about the ability that we have to make fabrics, so planar 2D materials that can be folded into three-dimensional space to create products, um, but without even making fibers. So we have uh, polymers in solution. We've either melted them or made a a bath of chemicals with them, and uh, we had a choice. We could have extruded them as fibers, or we could have extruded them in other shapes. You've done that, right, with your little Play-Doh extrusion set when you were a kiddo. You made spaghetti, and then you made flowers, and you made stars, right? Uh, So we had a choice. We had a choice about the shape of the hole in this spinneret. We could actually make it be an incredibly long slit and extrude the polymers as what's called a film. So thin sheets of extruded polymers are called films. The benefit of making a film is that the films will be waterproof and wind resistant because there are no pores in them. There are no fibers or yarns to interlace or um, punch together or tangle or glue together. The polymers are just bonded with each other in this large thin film. Uh, So, in fact, film is the name of one of the things that we can make. Um, Think cling wrap, uh, plastic wrap, right? So we call it a film because it's very thin and flexible and kind of like the the scum on the top of uh, milk when you heat it too much, right? That's where we get this name for a film. It's a thin coating of something. And so the films are thin and flexible. Now, there's actually a little more variation in in films. We use films for things like shower curtains and shopping bags and, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, clear plastic that we would wrap around food or make, um, you know, uh, 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 painter's drop cloth with, for example, right? Or we could add a little bit of air and make it a tiny bit thicker. Um, The example that I use for students at this point to kind of help them remember it I want you to think about eggs. So if you just cracked an egg into a pan, you could make a fried egg and you would have a white part of that fried egg that was thin and flexible, right? And all fairly even. And yeah, it was kind of thick, but we wouldn't describe it as fluffy, right? But if you just beat that egg a little bit, you could make scrambled eggs, keep stirring while you're cooking and the scrambled eggs will get even better. And actually another secret to really good fluffy scrambled eggs is to take them off the heat just a bit before they're finished because the residual heat inside the eggs will finish them cooking. If you get them all the way cooked in the pan, uh, then they will continue to cook on the plate and end up being over dry. 
So uh, we just uh, make them a bit spongy, right? Uh, add a little bit of air by whisking them a little bit, and we end up with a film that's just a little bit softer for use for things like apparel or upholstery. Now, if we're going to use it for apparel and upholstery as opposed to something that we want it to be thin and very flexible, like a painter's drop cloth, we might add a backing. And the backing gives it some support. And in the case of things like apparel, going to make pleather pants, for example, uh, so it would be an expanded vinyl film. Well, there's no um, water getting through that, and it's wind resistant, which means that if you sweat, you are living in your sweat. Your sweat is staying inside the pants with you. Uh, whereas if we add a backing made from um, uh, non-woven uh, rayon or a knitted rayon or something else that's very absorbent, then some of that sweat's going to soak into the into the backside of the pleather as opposed to just sliding down your leg and into your sock. So uh, the backing adds some comfort. It also makes it uh, more sturdy for things like upholstery where uh, people will be you know, shifting around on it. They could potentially stretch it or rip it. Uh, the backing provides some strength. So you uh, very likely have seen an, an um, supported film at some point. Now, this is different than a laminate. A laminate is when we um, take two layers. Well, it is a laminate, but uh, the laminates I'm thinking of are uh, if we coat the foam with, um, uh, uh, if we are the... I'm doing this badly. Let me start over. So when we talk about a laminate, we're really thinking about um, that we've we've attached two layers together. And while supported film is a laminate, when we talk in the industry about laminates, we're really thinking of things like the micropores Gore-Tex. So in that case, the, um, the film has tiny little pores in it that allow water vapor to transfer through. And if we apply that film to the back side of the fabric, so this is kind of where it's a little bit different. The supporting on the back side of the film in supported film is because the film is the star, film star, right? But in the case of the Gore-Tex, the backing is kind of white. It's not the star. Nobody wants to know it's there. It's on the underside of a woven or uh, knitted, but typically woven fabric that is um, meant to be the fashion side, right? So we're thinking like, oh, this raincoat's made out of fabric. But then it has a layer of uh, this micropores film on the underside. The tiny little pores allow the vapor, so you're, you, you were hot, you sweated, your sweat evaporated, and then there's vapor inside your clothes. Now, if the vapor can never get out because you are wearing pleather pants, then eventually the vapor is going to recondense and run down your leg into your sock. But if there's tiny little pores in the film that allow only water vapor to go through, not droplets of water, not liquid water, only vapor, the pores are that small, so single molecules of water, not groups of, not gangs of water, just single molecules of water. It's like a super aggressive bouncer that will only let in one water molecule at a time. That water vapor can actually travel through the film and then be released on the outside, keeping the vapor pressure on the inside of the garment low enough that you can continue to evaporate your sweat and stay cooler. But because this super aggressive bouncer doesn't let large droplets of water through, if you're in a rainstorm and water soaks through the fashion fabric on the outside, it cannot penetrate through this microporous layer into the interior of your raincoat situation. 
these garments are so handy. I got uh, my whole family, we got um, uh, microporous film coated rain pants for our trip to Norway, our family trip to Norway. My last name, Hustavet, is a Norwegian name, went to visit our meet our family who we didn't even know were still alive that was a whole fun story uh turning around and there's a relative we didn't even know existed right um but uh uh it rains a lot and we wanted to be comfortable and it turns out you can actually wear microporous film coated rain pants and just you know ride a ferry and sit around and have fun with your nieces and nephews and be wearing basically rain pants and stay dry. It was actually very comfortable. Great idea. My sister gets a gold star for suggesting that. So this is different, but a similar um, category of, it's not supported film, but it's a similar idea. And then of course, last but not least, we want to think about foams. If um, a regular film is a fried egg and expanded film is uh, scrambled eggs, then foam is a souffle. We are going to whip that egg so high it's fluffy, right? So we actually will whip a lot of air into the polymers, typically polyurethane, and then we extrude this, this beaten foam and it hardens and creates uh, something that has lots and lots of um, air bubbles inside of it. Uh, we use it now for beds, right? Uh, memory foam beds. Uh, we use it for cushions. It is a very important safety feature um, used on the inside of helmets uh, so that when your skull slams into the side of the foam at a high rate of speed, the little air bubbles inside the foam basically crush and pop and it slows your skull down. The goal is to slow your skull down at a smooth, even rate so that your brain that's also moving, right, but because it's in a liquid, is going to be moving at a different rate of speed than your skull, which is bone, is moving. And the goal is to slow your skull down smoothly and slowly so that your brain has time to stop too without slamming into the inside of your skull. Which is why if you do ever come off your bicycle and hit your head or your motorcycle and hit your head while wearing your helmet, it's really important that you mark the helmet with a permanent marker that it has been used because you've broken all of the little foam, the air bubble cells inside that foam in the place that your skull struck the foam. And if anyone else's skull strikes the foam in the same place in the future, they will not be protected. So they'll end up with a brain injury and they'll never know why. Um, so it's important that if the helmet is ever actually used to save uh, your brain from smashing into your skull, that you... Um, you don't just casually give that helmet to someone else and put their brain at risk. Yeah, get kind of serious about that. A big bike accident I had that one time. I was wearing a hockey helmet, which actually the doctor said, based on the shape of the bruise on the back of my neck, the hockey helmet probably prevented my neck from snapping as my body arced forward over, backwards over my head. Um, so, uh, wow, good to know. Uh, a whole life I could have had and thankfully didn't. All right, on that note, let's talk about something else that uh, can be a little bit difficult and awkward for some people. I'm going to take it from a, a purely um, 
logistical point of view, because I know uh, in, in any given semester, I've had students in my class whose family uh, make a living from the production of animals for um, eating and so ranching families. Uh, I'm in Texas. That's a very natural thing. And uh, it's only natural after we've processed the animals for meat for steaks and hamburgers and pork chops that we would process the skins of the animals to be made into leather. Otherwise, it's just a waste product. So leather is the fibrous material that uh, is processed from an animal covering of some sort. And I say that because we call it a hide if the animal is very large and we call it a skin if the animal is smaller. Uh, and actually the line between the hide and the skin is roughly the size of a person, right? So like a, a donkey skin, but a horse hide, right? So roughly in there. Um, so we, we might have a, a llama hide and an alpaca skin because alpacas are smaller. Uh, and um, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, that's that. Um, inside the, the animal covering that has been removed, we have uh, several layers depending on how large the animal was and how thick their skin or hide was. Um, but typically, if we're talking about a, a cowhide, we can split it uh, into four separate parts. Uh, the base that was um, close to their internal organs is called the slab. That will be used for things like the bottoms of shoes. Uh, and the outside that had the hair growing out of it is called the top grain, and that's often used for, um, you know, uh, things where the grain may be of interest, right? So sofas and other things. And in between the two, we may be able to get two more splits out as we sort of shave these layers off of the of the cowhide. So the first split and the second split. And the closer we get to the slab, the more fibrous uh, and tough the material is. But chamois, for example, uh, or suede can be taken from one of those inside splits. And then we nap the surface. Uh, so we, we brush it. Uh, now, uh, just to give you some additional definitions, um, fur and hair and fleece are three different things, right? So this is the animal skin that still has the fibers attached to it. Right. And I say skin because typically, uh, oh no, we could have a, 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 a I've um, walked across rugs that were made from um, the hide of a cow that still had the hair attached, right? Um, so, uh, so some animals have hair and some animals have a fleece, uh, specifically uh, sheep have a fleece and this means the hair has a, a, a distinctive 3D crimp and um, uh, then we also have fur which is incredibly soft and fine uh, designed for um, camouflage and thermal retention. And so uh, we'll often end up in different end uses, but it's just from a vocabulary point of view, hair, fleece, and fur are three different things. Uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in the mountains in Colorado and uh, certainly have done my fair share of hunting and helping with hunting. And uh, so, you know, I, I come from that kind of culture and, and um, have that particular relationship uh, with animals that comes from a utilitarian perspective. Um, but, I, but I understand that there are some people who are, well, I don't know if you have the right to be squeamish and then go out and get a hamburger is what I'm saying. So if you're going to eat a hamburger, you probably should know what the whole rest of the cow is used for. Is a thought I had. 
And that does it for non-yarn materials. Uh, very interesting, uh, very, very uh, in demand, um, especially for end uses like the medical or biohazard industry.